this episode of Skeptico, I keep asking the same question. Does your spiritually transformative experience matter? Well, does it, Jody Foster? Wait a minute, let me get this straight. You admit that you have absolutely no physical evidence to back up your story. Yes. You admit that you very well may have hallucinated this whole thing. Yes. You admit that if you were in our position, you would respond with exactly the same degree of incredulity and skepticism. Yes. Then why don't you simply withdraw your testimony and concede that this journey to the center of the galaxy, in fact, never took place? Because I can't. I had an experience. I can't prove it. I can't even explain it. But everything that I know as a human being, everything that I am tells me that it was real. Okay, well, does it, Dr. Yvonne Kaysen? This is what I'm getting to, is that I don't want to hear about the different kinds of near-death experiences. What I want to know is what is going on in these extended realms? How are we supposed to understand them? And how are we supposed to understand the information that's coming back from these extended realms? I'm offering a a vocabulary as a starting point. I'm not saying it's the be-all and the end-all. It's just as I started as a young doctor, because I started having, as you mentioned, my first NDEs, one when I was five, one when I was 11. You know, I started having out-of-body experiences. I started seeing spirits and ghosts when I was a child after my near-death experience, which we now know is a common after effect. And then my kundalini awakening, mystical experience, near-death experience. I now have words that I can use to describe these, and you at least have an idea. Even if we don't know what it is or what causes it, or we can argue how we interpret it, at least we now have a vocabulary that we can communicate about it. That first clip was from, believe it or not, way back in 1997, the movie Contact. That was Jodie Foster starring in that one. And the second clip was from today's guest, Dr. Von Kaysen. I know there are a lot of people who are really going to not like this interview in a number of ways, particularly since I push on Dr. Yvonne Kaysen very hard at times. But how else are we going to get to the next level of this stuff? We can't just keep talking about the love and light of the spiritually transformative experience without wondering whether there's another side. Hope you enjoy the interview super intelligent, super well-informed and qualified and accomplished person who I hold in very, very high regard, and I'm very appreciative for being on the show. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality. I'm joined today by Dr. Yvonne Kaysen, author of Soul Lessons from the Light, which you either just heard about or you're going to hear about in a minute when we paste her clip in. And the subtitle is How Spiritually Transformative Experiences Changed My Life. And the other book that we will talk about is Touched by the Light, because Dr. Kaysen is really one of the, if not the first person to kind of coin, put a label on this term, spiritually transformative experiences. And in that book, she outlines a number of different ones of them. And although I have not read that book, I'm definitely familiar with that uh, material and with her material. And she's been on the show. We're kind of old friends, known each other for a while. She's been over to my house. We did some filming, which never made it on the air, but that's okay. And it's very cool that she contacted me about this new book, 
and that we're able to reconnect. So, Dr. Kaysen, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me back. I'm really glad to reconnect, too. So, as people are going to hear, you've lived quite an amazing life, amazing life, as this book, Soul Lessons from the Light, really kind of lays out. Toronto physician, like a, a real doctor doctor, you know, not a fake doctor. And someone who gets interested in yoga and meditation at an early age. And I love this part of the story. You know, at 23 years old, you're there in yoga meditation class and you're going, hey, I think it just happened here, guys. And and I say guys, because like all the guys are like, nah, nah, that couldn't happen. We've been sitting here for 10 years. We never got anything like that. And you're like, no, I think it, and you were even, you know, again, you're a woman and kind of in a man's world. And it's like, so you don't want to assert it too far and say, well, I think, you know, so you kind of sit on it for a while and then you go, yes, I did have a Samadhi experience an awakening experience, whatever we're going to call that. But then, you know, as we get more into your story and I want to recap this because I do have a lot of questions that I want to ask beyond the book. I really don't want to do a, a book interview. People can go read the book. People can go listen to other interviews with you where you talk about the book. We're going to take it in some different directions. But your story is really important because, you know, when you tell somebody, Yvonne, that you've had five near-death experiences, people are immediately skeptical. They are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. One, For of the sure. great, one of the great things about the book is it really kind of demystifies that in a number of ways, but one in a very kind of plain way. It's like, hey, my first near-death experience was I was just a little kid goofing around in the train and I went under there and almost got hit by a train and somebody pulled me out at the last second. And you go, well, that could happen. You know, I have kids or myself, I, you know, I could see that. And then at 11 years old, you're in a horrible car accident where almost your whole family dies and mm-hmm. you're left at the scene. They don't even know that you're there. And you, people go, well, I yeah, I get it. That could happen, especially she wasn't even driving the whole thing. It wasn't her responsibility at 11 years old. And then you're in a uh, plane crash and you're in a lake and you almost uh, drowned in a freezing water. And again, you would just go, well, that could happen. Every time I've been on a plane, especially a small plane, you're like, what if the thing goes down? I could drown. <laughs> well, it happened to Yvonne. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, finally the, the slip and fall accident is again. So I, I guess the the point being that it it is interesting the life you've lived and what's come with these experiences is probably quite unusual, very unusual, because you've lived this life of spiritual transformation, spiritual growth, spiritual seeking, and a lot of experiences that go with that. So I, I just wanted to sketch that out, and I want you to pick it up and and kind of fill in how this whole life has unfolded for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you summarized it great, Alex, and I'm really happy that you had a chance to read the book because because it, it just felt important for me um, at this point in my life. You know, I'm a senior now. I'm retired from the practice of medicine. And so because of that, as you mentioned, I'm a medical doctor. I used to teach and practice at the University of Toronto for many years. I was on faculty there. And so I was always a little bit guarded in how much of my personal story I would share 
because I was concerned about my medical license. I didn't want it to come back on me and that I'd end up losing my medical license because, you know, somebody got offended by something that I said. And so now that I'm retired, I feel a great freedom. It's like, okay, all right, guys, here's a scoop. This is really what's been happening behind the scenes that I didn't feel um, free enough to share early on in my life. And the other thing that's very exciting about uh, my having written Soul Lessons from the Light, and I'll share that with your listeners, is that um, it's the product of the miracle. Because my last near-death experience, my fifth near-death experience, we'll start there, that you mentioned, um, happened in 2003 when I slipped on black ice at Niagara Falls and I hit my head on rock and had a very serious traumatic brain injury where I died instantly. And, and I had what we now know, people who've heard or read about near-death experiences, what we can observe now and understand, oh, yeah, she had a pretty typical near-death experience, which I did, because when I hit my head instantly, I found my, 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 my point of perception or my soul or my spirit or whatever you want to call it, whisked out of my body and upwards by a force greater than myself. You know, I was just like passively being pulled by this force. And I was rising up really rapidly through this dark expanse of space that some people might think is a tunnel, but for me, it was like a dark expanse of space. And I was rising up to this um, opening to uh, a brilliant white light realm which I had seen before in my plane crash near-death experience. So I knew where I knew where I was heading. This time it was not the first time. But what was different this time was um, I was welcomed by two beings of light and two beings of light that I absolutely recognized. Um, and their names were Paramahansa Yogananda and Mahavatar Babashi, who are great saints from my particular spiritual tradition. And it was like they were welcoming me and explaining to me mentally or telepathically so that I would understand what was going on. And they mentally or telepathically communicated to me that um, my physical body had died, that my work in the body of Dr. Yvonne Quezon was finished. And, and there was this incredible feeling in the light and also that they were emanating of just this incredible love incredible joy, welcome. The feeling was like there was a surprise birthday party or a surprise graduation party being held for me, you know, and I was a guest of honor and I had now arrived and it was just this incredible feeling of joy and love. And then I remember it was like my, my ego mind was like, like they show on TV, a little devil on your shoulder whispering things. It was like my ego mind was this little voice on my shoulder went, uh-oh. Here comes the life review because, you know, I heard that other people when they die actually die during their near-death experiences. They had life reviews. And I mean, I, I've always tried to have a good life, but, you know, we make mistakes. So I wasn't really looking forward to, you know, what my life review was going to show me. And it was so incredible what happened because the two saints, they could read my mind and they just tell, looked at me. And with a glance, there was this incredible transmission of information. And I suddenly understood and knew like the, 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 the concern, the anxiety, the fear was just blown off my shoulder. The little nasty voice was blown off, like blowing off a fleck of dust. And what I understood in that transmission was 
just like a loving parent, when it sees its child who's learning something, for example, learning to, to walk, that the child is going to make mistakes and stumble and fall. And maybe it's going to skin its knees or bump its head or fall on something and break it. But, but the loving parent understands that it's all part of the learning process. And so the loving parent doesn't punish the child for that mistake, but rather embraces the child and comforts the child to say, that's okay, honey. You can do it. You can try it again. You can do better next time. And then, the, so with, with that sort of feeling of love and comfort, I didn't worry about the life review. And then I went into feeling just incredible joy and love. And there are many, many things that happen on the other side that are very difficult to explain in words. But I, I do want to explain a couple things. And so I move on to answer your question about what it was like after. But while I was actually on the other side, I sort of shifted in my consciousness is the best word I have for it, or my awareness to a place or a state where I was no longer actually seeing visual images. But what was happening was it was somehow, it was like my consciousness had expanded. It's like I'd been a, a Pentium 2 computer consciousness, and now I was a Pentium 100 mega computer that, that my capacity and my consciousness was vastly expanded. And I could take in vast amounts of information all at once, like more than in my, you know, now that I'm back, than I could possibly even contain in my mind. And suddenly in this sort of expansive state, I re-remembered all of my past lives. And, and the, the feeling when I re-remembered them was like, oh yeah. <laughs> I was like, of course, that's right. And it's sort of like how, how, how odd that I didn't remember them while I was incarnated because it was all a fit, you know. So it's, oh yeah, that was me. That was me in the past. And, and with that, there was also like an aha experience. This is the best I, I can describe it because suddenly my life incarnated as Dr. Yvonne Kason up until that point made sense. Because before that time, I always thought my life was a bit Odd <laughs> and odd in the sense of like as you described, like hello, five near death experiences, Kundalini awakening, mystical experiences. How is it that I'm having all these experiences? I'm just this little doctor in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> like, why is all this stuff happening to me? And when I re-remembered all of my past lives in that expansive state of consciousness. It was obvious and it was clear and it completely made sense because what I re-remembered was that this is not my first incarnation where I'm having these sorts of experiences. I've in fact had near-death experiences, kundalini awakening, mystical experiences in many of my past lives, including my most recent past lives. So it seemed like my soul, from a soul level, I was just sort of continuing on from, you know, what I've been like in recent incarnations. But from an ego level on this incarnation, until that point, I really didn't know, like, why is all this stuff happening to me? I am a little, a little different from what the average person experiences. But from a soul level, it made complete sense. And the other thing I wanted to mention, because I think it is, it's somehow so significant that I uh, was aware of while I was on the other side. 
was how time passes differently on the other side. That that on the other side, there's I had this clear awareness that yes, I understood how we, when incarnated in the bodies here on Earth, we experience time linearly, right? That there's the past is behind us, the present's where we're at right now, and the future is something that we haven't seen yet in the future. Whereas on the other side, there was a clear awareness that time could bend, that it could loop so that you could actually re-enter, which I think actually happened. I think I re-entered my body, or I, that I was over there much longer than my body was dead on earth, that when I was sent back, it was like time bent to bring me back at a time that my body could still come back to life, you know, that I hadn't been dead too long, that time can bend. But also there's another interesting phenomenon is that on the other side, it was like the past, the present, and the future were all perceptible, almost like they were happening at the same time. And, 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 and what it was like was that depending on where I focused my attention, so if I focus my attention this way to what we on earth perceive as the past, that I could very clearly perceive the past. If I shifted my attention sort of to a different place in consciousness that I would could to the present, that I would be perceiving what we here on earth perceive as the present. And that if I shifted my consciousness to what we a little differently, I could be observing what we here on the earth perceive as a possible future. And it it felt totally it made sense and it felt totally natural on the other side because the perception of time was very different. And, and the metaphor I sometimes use to explain this is um, a multiplex movie theater that most people have probably been to. You know, it's a movie theater and it's got like maybe 10 or 12 or 15 different uh, little theaters in there that ha may have different movies playing. So imagine that in each of the theaters, you have um, a different movie with the same actor. But what maybe in one one movie he's a Civil War soldier, in another movie he's a, a Native Indian, in another movie he's a, a Black African doing something, another movie he's a Tibetan monk, and all in different times of history. So that that a person who doesn't understand the concept of a multiplex movie theater would walk in there and would be confused and think, how is it possible that the same actor he's been Black, he's been Asian, he's a man, he's a woman? He's in all these different times of history at the same time because in the, the multiplex, they're all playing at the same time. But we understand, okay, he filmed it at a different time, but when we're in the multiplex, we can watch them all at the same time. So that's the best metaphor I've had for how time is perceived different on the other side. We know that we experience it linearly, but we can perceive it it just matters which of the little theaters we go into, whether we're looking at the past, the present, or the future. Anyway, after a period of what I call um, timeless time, because time is experienced so different on the other side, the two beings of light reappear to me, and they telepathically communicated to me, you may now choose. And so I have to translate. You may now choose means you must now choose. <laughs> what, they, what they said was you may now choose. 
And the choice I was given was to incarnate in the body of a baby and or, and interesting, the choice was and or, not or, and or to go back to the injured body to serve the divine. And I was in such a state of, I guess, mystical ecstasy, mystical communion, expansion, love, profound trust, knowing on a soul level the infinite wisdom and loving wisdom of the plan, the higher powers plan. It's like my ego mind was just, I guess, resting. And it was just my heart or my soul that responded. And immediately it just came out of my heart or my soul. Oh, masters, please guide me. What is the higher choice? I want to do God's will. And so lovingly and so gently and how a thought can have that exquisite sweetness and love. Very hard to explain, but it is exquisitely sweet and loving vibration to the thought. It will be more difficult, but to return to the injured body. And my soul did not ask any questions. I did not ask for any details. Some people talk about this quotes, choosing that like they're shown all the details and then they choose to want to go right or want to go left. That didn't happen to me at all. What happened to me was, yes, I was given the choice of a baby or going back to the injured form, but I was shown no details about either uh, situation. And I didn't care. It was like that desire to know the details, that ego desire didn't exist in me at that time. I was in a complete state of openness, surrender, and trust of the higher power. And if the higher path was to return to the injured body, my soul instantly accepted. And then as soon as my, I responded, I accept. It was faster than the speed of thought that I suddenly I was gasping. I'm, I'm, I'm breathing air back into my previously dead body that's lying on the ground. And um, for the first few minutes that I was lying there, slowly starting to, to breathe life into my body, which was like waking up in an ice cube because I had died outdoors in winter in Canada. Uh, so my body temperature dropped and I started to breathe. I, as I was breathing life into my, my, my body and lying there on the ground, I could see both realms at the same time. It was like, you know, a double exposure photo where you have, uh, you know, two images superimposed on the other. And that's what I could see, that, that I could see the physical world around me as I was regaining consciousness. But I could also see the white light realm superimposed on it and the two beings of light standing there. And it was, it, they literally had ushered me back into my body, but it happened so fast. Like there was no sense of movement. It was just, was faster than the speed of thought. Suddenly I was back in my body and they were there with me. And then they slowly started fading from view in the white light realm, which was gone with, within a few minutes, except for a tiny little spot, which was my life ring afterwards. And I came back to a seriously disabled body. I had had a serious traumatic brain injury with a brain hemorrhage, lacerated both my frontal lobes and all sorts of injuries in between. And um, 
it was really difficult. I was told it'll be more difficult. It was really difficult coming back as a disabled person. So that happened November the 8th, 2003. And I tried really hard to get better, to get back to who I was before, because uh, my life previous to the head injury, I had been, you know, I had already had four previous near-death experiences, kundalini awakening, mystical experiences. I coined the phrase spiritually transformative experiences. I'd already written four books by that time, and I was talking about it. And I was counseling experiencers. I was the first Canadian medical doctor to specialize in counseling experiencers and researching the whole spectrum of spiritually transformative experiences. I loved what I did, loved what I did. But it became clear after the head injury that for whatever reason and the cosmic design, that life was over, you know, that, that I'd had this wonderful what I thought was interesting, very rich and rewarding life before my head injury, that that chapter was over. Now I was a disabled person. Um, I went to neuro rehabilitation for seven years trying to, to get better. And finally, I had to, you know, come to a place of acceptance. I tried to use the spiritual and psychological learning that I'd had in my life until that point. Uh, and one of the principles I've always tried to live by is try to look at the cup half full rather than half empty. Always try to look at the positive. And, and so when it became clear that I was not going to be able to return to my work as a doctor or to writing books or to public speaking or, or volunteering my son's school, all these wonderful things I used to do, I thought, okay, well, what's the positive in this? Well, I guess the positive is I don't have to go to work. Yes, my income was much lower because I was living on disability insurance, but I don't have to go to work in the morning. So, well, let's look at it that way. And so I, I, I chose to frame it as early retirement rather than, oh, I'm disabled. It's like, okay, life has given me early retirement. I've had retirement. I happen to be disabled. <laughs> I happen to only have half the normal person's stamina, but I have half a person's stamina. So I'll do the best I can with that half a person's stamina. Anyway, I, I also came to realize that if I couldn't serve in the outer ways that I used to serve by helping experiencers and educating about spiritually transformative experiences, how could I now serve? And what, what came to me was, well, I can serve through my prayers and meditation. And so I'll serve inwardly. And so I took my inner life, my spiritual life, very, very serious at the same time as I was, of course, still trying to do all the physical stuff to try and get better, all the neuro rehab and cleanses and detoxes. I mean, I did everything, removed my mercury fillings, you name it, I did it to try and get better. But it, you know, for whatever reason, I remained disabled. So I really focused on regaining my ability to meditate because that was one of the things I lost in the head injury. Frontal lobe brain injuries affect your concentration and, and um, I completely lost my ability to meditate. And it took many, many years of, of really um, stubborn, <laughs> tenacious effort for me to gradually, gradually, gradually regain my ability to meditate. And then my prayer and my meditation became like my spiritual anchors as I dealt with the physical challenges of being a, a disabled person in the world. 
So as I share in my book, Soul Lessons from the Light, just when you think you know, you've sort of figured out what, what God's plan or the universe's plan is for your life, ha, 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 because you never know when a surprise is going to hit you. Because much to my surprise, and since we spoke last, Alex, I had a miracle happen to me on February 24th, 2016. So this was about 12 and a half years after I was disabled by the traumatic brain injury. So I, and, and medical doctors, you know, medical teaching, I mean, I'm, I'm a medical doctor. The teaching is that after two years following a neurological injury, if you haven't healed by then, well, it's considered chronic or permanent. You know, very rarely, very rarely, there might be a little bit of improvement, but it's considered permanent. And uh, this was 12 and a half years later. So I'm meditating uh, down in Encinitas, California at the Self-Realization Fellowship Retreat uh, at a power place. I love to meditate at power places because having had five near-death experiences, I'm very intuitive and very sensitive to spiritual vibrations. And there's a strong spiritual vibration there. Because that's one of the places where Paramahansa Yogananda, the great saint, uh, American saint, father of yoga, where he used to commune with God and go into these great samadhi mystical experiences. So there's a strong spiritual vibration there. And I was meditating on the chapel that was built right on that spot where he had his samadhi experiences on February 24th, 2016. And suddenly, inwardly, I perceived this eruption of light in the middle of my brain. It was like inwardly, it was like a, a volcano erupted or a, a fountain of liquid light suddenly um, sprung forth. And it, it literally, it, it inwardly, the, it was like an area in the center of my brain that had been in darkness for over 12 years. That suddenly the lights came on, like literally I could see it bright with light inwardly. And the, the subjective uh, sensation was of waking up. It was like my brain woke up after being asleep for 12 years, the, the central part of my brain. And at the same time that this happened, there was like a, a floodgate that opened. It's all these ideas that had been locked inside of me for the previous 12 years that I should be writing in my next books, plural, were just streaming through my consciousness. Because I had had a little bit of a locked-in phenomenon. So, and how my doctors explain that to me is that using the computer analogy, uh, the hard drive of my brain, the hard drive of my computer, so the long-term memory, the spiritual insights, the life experience, that was all there. That was all intact. My hard drive was never injured or my intelligence. None of that was injured. But it was like having a computer with an intact hard drive where maybe the keyboard, the mouse, and the screen aren't working. <laughs> so doesn't matter that the hard drive is okay because you can't use it, you know, for practically anything because the keyboard, the mouse, and the, the screen aren't working. Well, it was like with that healing, all that hard drive wanted to get all wow. this stuff out. And that's how I had a, a, a very strong inner message when the healing happened which is pass on what you have learned. And so uh, some of my friends say I was offline for refurbishment for 12 years. And so now it's Yvonne version 2.0 that came out. 
and who knows in the divine plan. But that is what happened. And and uh, so I wrote two. I've written now two new books since my brain healing. I just started writing like a like a fiend um, after uh, the healing. And the first one that I wrote is Touched by the Light that you had mentioned earlier on, which has like, a, 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 it's like a summary of my 40 years of research into spiritually transformative experiences. I give all the definitions of the different types of experiences and I give case examples for them. So people will read it and go, oh, that's what that's called. I had that experience. I didn't know that was called a X, whatever. But uh, so that came out in 2019. And then the second book that I've just written that just came out in December is Soul Lessons from the Light. And that is my personal spiritual awakening journey. And I'm really delighted to share it. And as as you mentioned that that um, I talk about all five of my near-death experiences, my kundalini awakening, many other mystical experiences, past life recall, all sorts of clairvoyance, clear audience, clear senses, all sorts of stuff that happened to me. But, you know, it's, I, I, I want to say two things is that um, it's really, really special to me. Both the books are special to me because they, they show people that miracles can happen. You know, and I encourage people never give up hope. You know, I mean, we have to be realistic. We have to deal with the situation that's in front of us. But always keep a little part of you. Don't let go of hope completely because miracles can and do happen. And I am a living testimonial of that. These two books are evidence that that miracles can and do happen. And if it could happen to me, it could happen to you. The, the other thing that I think you said, you know, having had a life like this, what, 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 what did I learn from having had a life like this with all of these experiences? And now with this most recent experience with being disabled and then being healed and having been clinically dead, because the other ones I was close to death, my other near-death experiences, this was the only one where I was clinically dead. And, you know, those are sort of my, my closing conclusions of, the, of, of this book is, you know, what have you learned from a lifetime that is like this? And I think the main things that I learned, I'm just going to put it very, very simply, and then you can ask me all the questions you want, but is the importance of love the importance of love and that, um, you know, some people have baggage around terms like God or the higher power, or if you want to use a different term, spirit, Allah, Brahman, the force, you know, having been over on the other side five times, it doesn't matter to me what name people want to call it. You can call it whatever you want, you know, from your, your, your particular background or tradition, but, but there is an intelligence behind the universe, no matter what name we call it or whether we believe in it or not. And the fundamental nature that I have experienced of this intelligence force is the love, that it's incredibly loving and that we're all, it's like we're all um, connected 
to this love. I, I, I call it sometimes like a, a billion or trillion legs on a millipede. We're all connected. We're all equally connected. All the legs are equally connected. We're all part of this big universal plan unfolding. But our capacity is little legs. <laughs> we don't have the capacity to have the awareness and the understanding that we're part of something much bigger and that we're, we're all connected in some way. We're all part of this big universal team. And actually, everything works better for everybody if we learn to love one another and work together rather than get into ego conflicts with each other. And the other, the other big, big, big take-home message I've learned from having all of these experiences in my life, spiritual experiences, is that... Um, I'm not the physical body. And none of us are the physical body. We are, what do you want to call us, souls or spirits that are living inside the physical body. Like, you know, like you, you go inside a car to move around. And when the car gets old, well, you get a new car. <laughs> so, and that's similarly when uh, our lifespan is, has ended, whatever uh, age we, we leave. We, our soul exits the physical body, like exiting an old car. I've experienced it five times. <laughs> Many other people have made testimonies to this. But we, what we are, the soul, the spirit, we live on. And after a certain period of what we call time down here, we seem to come back and incarnate again. And maybe on this planet, maybe not, but most of us tend to incarnate back on this planet at this point in our evolution. And um, what I was shown and what I've learned and also I saw with um, remembering my past lives is it's like a big cosmic school, you know, and the reason we have to keep coming back is, well, we've got more lessons to learn. Like if you finish grade two, well, still need to come back and do grade three. And maybe you pass grade three math, but you didn't pass grade three, I don't know, spelling or something. And so you're partly in one grade, partly in another grade, uniquely for what your soul needs in order to learn. And the last point I'm going to say is that what I was shown and what I've learned is it's a happy ending for everybody eventually. <laughs> we don't know how it how many lifetimes it's going to take or how many more errors we're going to make. But in the end, it seems the divine plan is that we're all eventually going to graduate from this school, which sometimes seems like a chamber of horrors, but actually it is a school where we're learning lessons through all of these experiences. And one day, every soul will graduate and make their way home. So how's that for an answer for your question? Well, it certainly leaves, uh, leaves a lot of questions. Maybe the place to start, and I don't know, we'll just kind of take this as it comes. But I just interviewed, so it happens I rarely do two interviews in a week, but I just yesterday as scheduling worked out, I interviewed a near-death experiencer, a really nice guy. The guy's name is Vinny Tolman. Don't know. He was, he was dead, dead mm -hmm. on the floor of the Dairy Queen for an hour before they came and got him. And he was, rigor mortis had set in and stuff like that. And uh, they cut him out of the body bag. I love that part of the story. Cut him out of the body bag because one of the EMT guys just had, first day on the job had this just intuitive sense that I need to do it. And the other guys, who were, the other team members were like, kid, what are you doing? Stop that. Don't quit messing with that dead body. And 
you know, you know, it came back to life. That's awesome. Came back to life. Wow. Here's the question. What are we doing with these NDE stories? What is the, what is the purpose of those? As I'm listening to your story, I'm going, there's a certain uh, fantastic. It's fantastic. It's a great story. And you have, you have to share it, but there's a certain yada yada to it. You know, heard them, heard them, heard multiple ones. Been on Jeff Long's website, thousands of them, read them yep. for inspiration. I get it. It's important that your, your account is important. It's important that you wrote it in the book. But one of the things that we know about near-death experiencers, and one of the things I want to do as an aside, and I've told mm -hmm. you this, is mm -hmm. I want to kind of cross-correlate this mm -hmm. with the other the interviews I've done and just recently interviewed PMH Outwater. And what I think she really pointed us towards very accurately with her longtime near-death experience researcher is the after effects. Mm -hmm. And one of the after effects that's kind of strange is this kind of proselytizing. People come back and they're converted and then they want to convert everybody else. And they also, in the process, they sometimes turn other people off. High rate of divorce, little thoughts. Yeah, because they're sometimes depressed. And there is a certain toughness about you that I really like in your story. It is that yoga toughness mm. that I think comes through. It's different than the Christian evangelical, holy Jesus, uh, rolling in the aisles. It's kind of a no, get up, sit on the mat, do the work, do the work the next day, where there's no place to go. We're not going to get there in front of anyone else. Do the freaking work. Mm -hmm. So the point, though, is what do we suppose, what do you suppose, is the point of the near-death experience story? Where does it work? Where does it fail us who are subjected to, to it? How do we process that? How do we work with that? as opposed to, or in addition to, the near-death experience science? Okay, well, I, uh, that's a great question. Thank you, Alex. And I have a few points I'd like to make about that. I think, um, first off, I think that near-death experiences are becoming more common. So I'd like to say that. I think they're becoming more common, and they're becoming more common because we have all these medical resuscitation techniques, you know, that, that like with the cardiac arrest story, all of the people in Pin von Lummel's uh, research, they all got resuscitated like with defibrillators, et cetera. And we have all sorts of other stuff. We have stories now of people on COVID respirators having near-death experience. Of course, before the technology of respirators, they would have passed away, you know, that, that so we have drugs that treat pneumonia, all sorts of things, surgery for heart conditions. So our medical advances, we, we, we are resuscitating more people. And actually, there's research now that with defibrillators, they are bringing people back who've been dead for you know, considerable periods of time. Then you have the other experience, like the fellow you interviewed yesterday or this week, who he came back on his own after being dead some period of time. Just to clarify, they zapped him. The guy cuts him out of the body bag hits him with the paddles. And then and, he came uh, back. Okay. Yeah. And, and he, he, yeah. Yeah. So again, so then that's what I was saying in the first place. It was the resuscitation technique. 
So it's a phenomenon that's happening more. But hold on, let me interject there. Uh -huh. Because already we got, it's problematic because that's not exactly Vinny's story, right? Vinny's story is he's above his body. He's seeing the body and add this to it because this is the God consciousness. This is the part that we have to process because when you say resuscitation techniques, technology, great, man. I want to go there. I want to talk about all that, the role of technology. But Vinny's story is, suddenly I saw a light in this guy, in this young trainee at the EMT, and this light was just glowing through him. And I heard a voice that said, you got to do this. Mm -hmm. And the guy takes action. So mm -hmm. this is not, you know, you could say the technology's there, but there's some kind of... But there's an additional story. component because... And here's the other part of that is that then he goes back to the guy and interviews the guy. Because one of the things I really pushed Vinny on, as I said, we need to be able to verify your story right mm -hmm. off the bat. So like, I, I, I believe you, but I don't believe you. So publish all the names of everybody because that's what it takes. And if we go back to the history, Evan Alexander, you know, debunked uh, Esquire magazine and then undebunked because you go and you really do the work thoroughly and that's part of the game, too, of what game is being played in terms of misinformation, disinformation, image cheapening, and all the rest of that. Eben Alexander comes through that with flying colors, but he had to go through the, the mill to do that. So that's what Vinny needs to do. But when he goes back and talks to the EMT, the EMT, he says, did you feel the, did you see the light? Did you hear the voice? And the guy goes, no. Nah. I had none of that stuff. I just felt like I needed to do it, right? So processing that leaves a lot of leaves a lot of gaps. But the first thing is it doesn't exactly fit with your first answer there. Not that you're you're right or wrong, but it's like this is what we're this is what we're dealing with in sorting this thing out. You know, we go to the mystic Yvonne and she says, well, it's because we have more technology. And then we I said that was one of the reasons. I didn't say that was the only reason. I, you know, that's one of the reasons. Uh, I, I was going to about to say, uh, sorry to interrupt there, but I think we're also hearing about it more. So, because we really don't have a barometer about how many, we know that it's been happening in the past because there are documentations going back in history. I can go into some of that if you want, but that we know that, um, I'll give you one example. There, uh, Gopi Krishna wrote about this, who was an Indian scholar who wrote about Kundalini awakening. And he thought that a particular um, tech, he thought there was a relationship between Kundalini awakening and near-death experiences, which also connects to the, the after effects, why so many people who have near-death experiences have the same type of after effects as somebody who's had a Kundalini awakening that maybe they're awakening kundalini with their near-death experience. And I've actually written about that, and I have several videos where I talk about that. But Gopi Krishna said that he thought the ancient yogic technique, and it's called Ketri Mudra, where uh, a yogi would try and turn their tongue back so that it would block their airway, so that it was actually sort of asphyxiate them. He thought that the reason they were doing that was that they were trying to induce a near-death experience, which would activate, which would make the kundalini awaken, which, you know, many advanced yogic practices, that's what they're trying to do, is to uh, awaken the spiritual energy. So he, 
he speculated that that's where that ancient technique came from. That is interesting and problematic in all the ways, right? In all the ways that we're talking about. These are the next level questions that we're not answering. So we can't just roll on with the story in the next one. I'll tell you, you know, I interviewed a guy. Do you know uh, Gregory Shushan, Dr. Gregory Shushan? I've heard the name, but I don't yeah, know. Uh, you mm-hmm. probably do because you're past president of IONS, uh, Ivan is mm-hmm. also that. <laughs> and so Gregory Shushan has done the most extensive work on NDE's cross-culture across time, right? So, and he's published Oxford-trained, you know, academic guy, published peer-reviewed. And there's it, it ties all this stuff together. One is that these things happen And at the end of the day, some of the conclusions he comes to is virtually every culture he saw, their afterlife belief system is based on people having these experiences. Near-death experiences. Interesting. And number two, that there is this temptation to induce these then, right? Mm -hmm. So we hear this shamanically, right? And Mm -hmm. and these are the rites of passage, you know, and you're going to get bit by 500 bees or you're going to do this or you're going to do that. So it's the same thing. And then we can look at that from uh, the accounts that we hear. That might not be necessarily the, the best plan for for an individual. But he might die. die rather than have a near-death experience. Yeah, I was going to share another one that Gopi Krishna pointed out, and I don't know if uh, Dr. Shushan also had it in his book, but he, uh, Gopi Krishna, um, looks at the headdresses of Egyptian pharaohs, you know, and how they have the serpent coming out of the third eye region in many of these headdresses. And the serpent is a really ancient symbol for the kundalini for an act of kundalini so uh he speculated and i mean this is speculation we speculation. can't prove it yeah but but i i find it fascinating to think about as as possibilities is that he speculated that the ancient egyptian rite there was a, a, one ancient egyptian rite for prospective pharaohs like an initiation rite where they would lock them in a tomb for a period of time so if you're locked in a tomb for a period of time, you're going to run out of oxygen. You're going to asphyxiate. And so uh, one of the things that if Kundalini awakens and goes to the brain, one of the phenomena is that it, it saves the brain. It keeps the brain alive, which is why Gopi Krishna said he thinks in many cases in a near-death experience, the Kundalini is awakening because it's uh, like the body's mechanism to try and keep the brain alive as long as possible. And so if the person locked in the tomb had a kundalini awakening and their brain was protected when, you know, the the people doing the initiation would open the tomb later, yes, you are fit to be Pharaoh. And, you know, if they open the tomb and he's dead, well, I guess he's not fit to be Pharaoh. And, and I mean, I find this interesting. I find it fascinating because when a person has an act of kundalini, just like someone who's had a near-death experience, because they're very similar after effects. I mean, that's been part of what I've been researching in my career, is that they tend to become more intuitive. They may develop psychic gifts as after effects. They may have mediumship. They may uh, become clairvoyant, clairaudient. They may develop past life recall. There's been lots of research into after effects of NDE experiencers. There's been less research into after effects on people with an active kundalini. But I was involved with that research with uh, when I was director, one of the founders of the Kundalini Research Network. I was the director of the Kundalini Research Network questionnaire project. 
And yes, we found this as after effects. This was published in Explore uh, in 20, I think it was 2020. What are the negative effects? Because I think those are underreported and they present kind of an interesting question. Because back to the original question is, what are we to do with the NDE accounts? Because right. they, they, are, they are tricky when we process yeah. them. And we're going to talk about that more now because yeah. we have other people saying, you know what, you're misinterpreting that. That's mm -hmm. uh, ET on the, in the extended realm. That's demonic in the extended realm. That's okay. all these other things. And I, I don't think we have any clear understanding of that. One of the things I appreciate about mm -hmm. your presentation about both here and other places I've heard it, is, you know, you, you're very uh, clear and confident in what you're talking about, but you're also very open about the edges of what mm -hmm. you know. And you're very quick to say, I don't know, maybe, could be, move over this way and that way, which I think is fantastic, is completely necessary. I, I, I love the story. I, I just wrap this back in and then I'm going to throw the mic back to you. One of the things you said in your in the original account, which we've heard many times over again, is that the download was expansive. <laughs> I was in this other realm, which almost everyone says is the real realm, is home, you know, is <laughs> it not this fake realm. And there, it's like, ask a question, you can't even get it, the thought in your head, it's instantly answered, you know everything, and you know stuff that you can't even ask the question. Come down here, no, funneled in, I'm, mm -hmm. Now I'm I'm trying to remember my dream the next morning. And That's I'm right. We're, we're down to a Pentium 2 again. That's right. <laughs> so w w I, I want to roll that back into how are we to understand the near-death experience? So I have to say two points here. I started saying it. We got off in a direction. One point is there are many different, there are at least three different types of near-death experiences. And I go into that in great deal and touch by the light. Is that People are right now sort of putting it all in one shoebox. It's all one thing. And no, it's not. There are actually. But that doesn't matter. I, I know that. No, so there's but, the out of body and does, then there's Todd going to heaven and there's the other one. The, it's, it's all the distressing. same. Okay. It's all the same in terms of people are coming back and they're telling their stories. Okay. And what are we going to do with those stories? And in particular, because we're going to talk about the other stories that don't have a near-death experience that mirror it. So the shamanic stories that do it, the psychedelic experiences, the ET experiences. I get what you're saying, but I, we're on the same wavelength. We're on the same wavelength. It's just, I wasn't complete with my thought. First off, because I'm a physician and as a physician, the way I was trained and the way that my mind works is I want to make an accurate diagnosis. Now, diagnosis seems to, you know, people, well, you're saying it's a disease. Okay. Let's call it an accurate label. I want to correctly and accurately label and define what it is that we're looking at here. And, you know, that, that's part of why I did all my work with spiritually transformative experiences, giving people definitions. Okay, this is a mystical experience. There are many subtypes of mystical experiences. Mystical experiences can happen to you when you're sitting and meditating. Mystical experiences can happen to you when you're looking at a sunset. Mystical experiences can happen to you just out of the blue. Some people, although it's a very rare, have it when they're doing hallucinogenic drugs or vision quests. Some people have mystical experiences when they're near death. So 
That is one type of mystical experience is the type that you have when you're near death. Similarly, starting from the other end, there are different types of near-death experiences. They are not all the same and they don't have the same after effects. And I think we're at a point where it is important to distinguish because they have different after effects. And if one type is the mystical near-death experience, and if you compare the after effects, that's the ones where the white light and they, they see beings of light, they may or may not have a life for you. These are the people who are really spiritually transformed and they start proselytizing like crazy afterwards. But you will find, many of them do, mystical experiences also of other types that might happen when you're meditating, might happen when you're watching a sunset. Those mystical experiences also profoundly transform people. Now, there's a second completely different type of STE, but it's related. And in yoga, because I found in my research, I looked at a lot of different models, psychological models, different sacred traditions. For me, I found the best vocabulary and model that fit for me was in yoga. So I use a lot of words from yoga. So in yoga, it's called a samadhi, a mystical experience. It's a samadhi. And there are many types of samadhi. And the yogic and Buddha traditions talks about it. Many types. But these are called samadhis. Now, there's an another uh, uh, capacity of our human consciousness to have more expanded experiences that is described in yoga as cities or psychic phenomenon. And there are many types of cities or psychic phenomena. The Yoga Sutras of Patajali has a whole chapter talking about all the different types of mental phenomenon. But in today's day and age, in 2023, there are vocabularies in English for these experiences. So one term is an out-of-body experience. That is one type of city. It is one type of psychic experience. And sometimes people will have out-of-body experiences when they're meditating. Sometimes they'll have them at night when they're dreaming. Sometimes they'll have them when they're close to death. And when they happen to have an out-of-body experience when they're close to death, that is also called a near-death experience. So nowadays, people are calling a near-death experience people who've had a mystical experience or an out-of-body experience, which are two very different experiences when they're close to death. Now, so often people will have both. And in yoga, this is understood by the chakras. Oh, I do have to say yada yada. Okay, mm -hmm. so I interview uh, Ray Hernandez, who yes. is part of- I know the, well. You know Ray, okay? Oh, I know him well, and I know his theory about the UFO, ET, everything, yeah. Right. Contact so, modalities, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, so, and that's uh, uh, th this whole group over there. And they're connected to- Edgar Mitchell, Edgar six, Mitchell yep. six Man Walk, who's recently passed away. But Ray's story, maybe you remember this, is Ray is in bed with his wife. And, well, he's in bed, but his wife isn't there. And he sees this bright light downstairs. He goes to walk down the stairs, and his little dog, who they were getting ready to put down the next day, very ill, and the dog couldn't move, was so the dog is running around. What's going on there? And his wife is going, the angel, the angel in the corner. And there's an ET in the corner who's showing, shining this light and has healed the dog. And she verifies that. Ray has a telepathic message in his head, which is a screen memory, which is very interesting and is not sounding like, oh, the God, you know, good spirit kind of thing is like, there's nothing going on here. 
go back upstairs and go to bed. This is not a love caring. This is more of a Mm -hmm. manipulation kind of thing. So he goes back upstairs and goes to bed. He has now had ongoing contact with witnessed by other people, witnessed by his neighbors, witnessed by this. His wife, who is Catholic, still understands this as a Interprets it. Uh, yeah. Interprets it. Yeah. But the elements of this are healing, like you're kind of healing. There's tons of, of reports of miraculous healing as part of these NDE accounts. But mm-hmm. these yes, NDE abduction accounts also have with them a lot of stuff that we would call evil. There's a sexual and contact tra- that is... Un- and, and traumatic, and traumatic to the experiencer. Yeah, absolutely. This is what I'm getting to, is that I don't want to hear about the different kinds of near-death experiences. What I want to know is what is going on in these extended realms? How are we supposed to understand them? And how mm-hmm. are we supposed to understand the information that's coming back from these extended realms. Because one okay. of the problems I have with what you're saying is you're starting to divine stuff that we have, we don't even understand. We haven't even begun to understand what it is. And now we're going to define it. We're going to categorize it. We're going to say, you saw this and you saw this. So you had an OBE and here are the guys from MK Ultra who they're remote viewing. And that's different than being psychic. And that's different than the Akashic Records. And that's, how do we know that's different? Just because we label remote viewing as different than OBE? That well, doesn't make it different. Well, well, this is part of the problem. And so that was why I'm offering a, a vocabulary as a starting point. I'm not saying it's the be all and the end all. It's just as I started as a young doctor, because I started having, as you mentioned, my first NDEs, one when I was five, one when I was 11. You know, I started having out-of-body experiences. I started seeing spirits and ghosts when I was a child after my near-death experience, which we now know is a common after effect. And then my kundalini awakening, mystical experience, near-death experience. I now have words that I can use to describe these, and you at least have an idea, even if we don't know what it is or what causes it, or we can argue how we interpret it, at least we now have a vocabulary that we can communicate about it. And that was what I've been trying to do with my work with Touched by the Light. And in Soul Lessons by the Light, yes, I use the best words I can to describe what I actually experienced. But, you know, the thing about these experiences is that no matter how hard we try, Alex, you can't fully describe an experience with words. You have to experience it. Like, like what does an orange taste like? Right. What we're talking know. about is trying to understand the best we can. Because, look, I can read back what you wrote, what you told us, and start pulling it apart. I mean, even when we say the other side, what, what, is, what does the other side mean? We use these terms. When I talk to Vin, yeah. when I mm-hmm. talked to Vinny yesterday... And I didn't have a chance to push him on this one because there were too many other things. But he's like, heaven is a planet. It's a physical place. It's a planet. Only the light reflects in. Okay. I'm like, dude, I, I, I do not think that really makes sense from a scientific astrophysics. I'm not totally dissing it. So then I talked to Ian McCormick and he says, I had a near-death experience. I met Jesus. I go, okay, so you had an encounter with Christ consciousness. No, bro, I met Jesus. And as a matter of fact, if you didn't meet Jesus in your NDE, then it's probably satanic because I'm Christian. 
So uh-huh. all this stuff is how people interpret it. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's not necessarily how they interpret it. That's that's my point is like to, to say that that's how they interpret it is to suggest that you understand it and they don't. I'm not saying that I understand it and they don't. But what I'm saying is based on my 40 years of research is that I, I share a story in my book. There's, it's, a, it's an Indian fable about a whole bunch of blind kids watch, washing an elephant. And they're each washing a different part. Like one's washing a leg, one's washing a trunk, one's washing a tail, one's washing the belly. And so when they, their teacher says, you know, what does an elephant look like? They're all giving a different description because the part that they saw, they're accurately, to the best of their ability, um, describing. And, and this is what I've come to understand about the not only near-death experiences, but the whole range of spiritually transformative experiences. And, and Ray Hernandez, is tra- I call those trans-dimensional experiences. And um, anyway, uh, and I include that as a type of spiritually transformative experience, just to have a vocabulary. Um, so... But there, that the reality of the 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 the, the multi-dimensional consciousness universe living uh, ecosystem infinitely broad that we're living in is so vast that it is it's like an ant trying to figure out you know Einstein's theory of relativity. That's what I've come to understand. We actually aren't capable of understanding the whole picture. But what we—that's but what we're trying to do. But but so, but you know, but, so, but what we can do is share what we have observed, and that's what I'm doing. This is what I've learned. This is what the thousands of people I've spoken to, you know. And my, I'll say this that that, that I'm glad that you pointed this out because I think this is very important in this field. We have to always be prepared to be flexible with new information and expand our understanding, right? Like I think Ray Hernandez is a great example because uh, in my early years of research and spiritually transformative experiences, the people that I encountered who had had UFO and T uh, encounters who came to me as a patient or, or met me at conferences or whatever, all reported it being very traumatic, you know, that it felt like an abduction experience. Uh, they wish it had never happened. It was very traumatic in their life. Uh, there didn't seem to be anything uplifting or spiritual about it at all. It, it was like being raped, you know, that it was like it, it felt like well, being, some of them were raped. Yeah. And some of them were raped. And and so this is a real phenomenon. And th- this is what I mean about not calling everything the same thing. And not everybody has the same experience. OK, hold it's, on, hold on. Hold on. Di- Who healed the dog? See, we here's don't the point. know. That's right. That's but the we bottom do, we, line. We don't, we if, don't know. If we don't know, then why are we saying God, uh, God did this, uh, the spirits gave me this choice, Yogananda was there and he said, you got the free will to do this or that. If we don't know, then we don't know goes all the way down. Well, yeah, absolutely. it's not an end. It's the beginning of the discussion. It's It's an introduction to the fact that we live in a multi-dimensional universe. And just like we, you know, way, way, way back when people used to think that the earth was the center of the universe and that all the planet, the sun went around it and that there was no life anywhere else or whatever. And we now realize, oh gosh, you know, we're in a solar system and we're in a galaxy. And guess what? There are other galaxies that have other suns and other planets and 
you know, and oh gosh, you know, with Star Trek and Star Wars, I think most people of our generation have pretty well figured out, you know, there's probably other life out there. It's not that we're the only life there is. But even at that, we're only talking on our physical dimension. What we're now learning through um, increased, I'm going to call it increased awareness about near-death experiences and mystical experiences, because the, the yogis and Buddhist adepts, they've been talking about this for thousands of years, that we're living in a multidimensional universe and that we're only perceiving a, a small fragment of, of the multidimensionality of reality. And um, so, so, so this is how I've come to understand it, um, is that, and that there are, you know, in the ocean, how you have different levels that near the, near the top of the ocean, the water is, the sunlight reaches and you go further down and the water's heavier and the sunlight doesn't reach there and you go even further down and the water's even heavier and there's less oxygen and no light and that you have different um, animals, creatures, beings, microbes, whatever, living at, e at each of these different layers. That, that, um, that I think that that's a little bit of uh, an analogy for understanding uh, what people experience, what you call the other side, uh, or very loosely people are calling the other side. It's not just one place. There, there's many dimensions we can go. They're going into the ocean. My God, there's many oceans. You can be in different heights. You can be in different places all over the planet. What you're going to see is different depending where you are in this massive ocean. And consciousness in the multidimensional universe is much vaster than that. So there, there are, there, I think we're, we're, we're like, uh, in our school of life where, uh, human beings are now as a, as a species, I'm saying collectively as a species on this planet, that we're in a stage in yoga, they call them yugas or ages. So we're in a sort of an upwards beginning of an upward yuga, according to yoga, which is a time of spiritual awakening. Um, you know, one of the things that I've done in the last couple of years is I founded a new organization called Spiritual Awakenings International um, to raise awareness about the whole spectrum of spiritually transformative experiences. And not to say that we have the answer because we don't. But what it does, what we do with Spiritual Awakenings International, we provide a place where people like Ray Hernandez or myself or other NDE experiencers, other STE experiencers of various types can share what they've experienced, what they've learned. And it normalizes it for other people because whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, there are a lot of people all over the planet. And because right now we have, People from 78 countries subscribe to Spiritual Awakenings International in just two and a half years. I mean, which is pretty phenomenal, which to me indicates that people all over the world are having these awakenings in consciousness. And Gopi Krishna hypothesized, again, we have no proof, but Gopi Krishna hypothesized, he thought this was like the next evolutionary stage for human beings so that, you know, the evolution is still going on. And that um, rather than, you know, growing another arm or leg or losing an arm or leg, which over thousands of years, supposedly these sorts of things happen to animals and creatures morph with uh, evolution, that what's happening on a human species is evolution of consciousness. Again, just look at it from another perspective. Uh -huh. Skeptico is about inquiry to perpetuate doubt. Doubt mm -hmm. is the ultimate spiritual tool. It's the ultimate laser that cuts through because our hearts are the same, Yvonne. 
It's mm-hmm. about God. It's about the light. It's about the ultimate reality of love. But to get there, we have to kind of do the cleaning work, the cleaning work of our soul. It's the difference between quieting the mind and listening to the voice. So it's listening to the voice and quieting the voice, both at the same time. They're contradictory, but that's yoga. Yoga is always a, a contradiction. So here's the thing. Talk to Mary Rodwell has worked with since at this point of people who've had these encounters with ET. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes through over and over again is ongoing genetic manipulation by mm-hmm. multiple species, multiple beings from different places coming down genetic manipulation. Look in the genetic record. Bruce Fenton has been on. Who's to say how consciousness, God, manifests? And in particular, if we look at ET, we seem to have evidence that they're kind of mixing the human, non-human, biological kind of thing. So th- th- that is my pushback. And But that is the challenge. If you are open to the challenge, which I truly respect, but I'm going to keep nudging you when we start saying, you know, Gopi Krishna says this. Well, he's wrong. He's wrong because well, of this. We prove that. That, that. I'm saying it's his opinion and we can't prove it or disprove it. But but what I can say is this, what I can say definitely from my personal experience and with the experience of Spiritual Awakenings International, that people all over the world, all over the world, all countries, all backgrounds, all religions, no religion, male, female, in between, whatever, are having various types of spiritually transformative experiences. Why this is happening, we do not know. But what I can say is it's happening. And it appears to me that it's accelerating. Now, that may not be true. Maybe exactly. that maybe that's a misperception. Maybe it's just that we're more aware of it now because of the internet and that we can, you know, everyone all over the world can get on the internet and come to the meetings and say, guess what? I'm in, in, in Africa somewhere and this is happening to me. And someone says, well, I'm in Japan and this is happening to me. And someone else in South America says, well, I've had a very similar experience. All I can say is it is happening to people all over the world. Um, I scientifically, because you, you describe me as a scientist and a doctor and all of those things, which is true, and a yogi, which is true. The most, uh, uh, another very, very important descriptor that I use for myself is an experiencer. I, I use that term. And um, when I was younger in my medical career, it was more important to me at that time than it is now to um, scientifically uh, uh, corroborate, you know, and, and have all the references and the research studies, et cetera. I'm at a point in my life as a senior now, and I've had so many experiences. And as a yogi, as a yoga practitioner, I've been practicing yoga for 45 years and meditating now, is that the only thing I can be absolutely certain of is what I personally have experienced. Yeah, that's not good enough. No, it's just not good enough. So when I hear experiencers talk about their experience and then say, that's all I can share is my experience. Tell us how your experience relates to everyone else's experience. Well, that's what I've done with my books. But the point that I'm trying to make is that in the end, when I go to sleep at night, just for me personally, the bottom line is what I've learned from 
all of my experiences and all of my research. But the one that, I mean, I'm telling you, this is most powerful is having had the experience of being dead, of being on the other side, of being loved and knowing that I am loved. And, and you know, the research is interesting. The data is interesting. And I, I get it. You're pushing it on Skeptico. But to me, as an experiencer, that's sort of where, where it ends is that I know that we are all loved, whether we understand the divine plan, whether we even have the capacity to understand the divine plan, whether our research even has the capacity to answer some of these questions that you're asking. I think probably we don't. How, how you can even figure out what questions to ask, I think you have to really listen to experiencers or be an experiencer yourself to even know what questions to ask when you're doing your research. The other and, problem with the experiencer thing is that it blows past the obvious fact that we're all experiencers. We are to some degree. We all have the voice inside our head. I have the voice inside my head. I have instant answers to questions when I can really quiet the mind. So I don't know how Excellent. that is different. Well, everybody well, does. Everybody does. So I don't know how that is different than your experience, but I want to know, but that's part of the process. So when the experiencer says, this is my experience, it's like bring forth your experience as it relates to other experiences. Here's, here's an example. I'll, I'll go with the Jesus thing because I love the Jesus thing because you let Christians off the hook way too much. So Jesus versus historical Jesus versus Christ consciousness. And then the follow-on question is, well, why did those uh, why did those Catholics rape all those little kids? And why do we let them off the hook? Why do we why do we still have such a thing as a Catholic church? Well, there's evil, and it doesn't it doesn't connect to this thing we call Christianity, this institution. We have a historical Jesus, really? Do, do, are we to believe that we have the historical Jesus? Do we have to prove that? Does it matter? Does it should it matter to you as a Christian? These are re, so these are questions. So you're an experiencer. Great, answer those questions. Jesus, historical Jesus, Christ consciousness. Let's let's get on those Christians. Let's not be let's not be accepting of and loving of everyone's religious tradition because it's a mixed bag. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Was there historical Jesus? I believe there was. What do you, what has, is your, has, has, what's has the he, evidence? Has he been, has what, he been is, vastly misunderstood and misinterpreted? Yes. What is, is there a mixture of good and corruption within pretty well every organized religion in the world? Of yada, yada. A, I got yeah. all that. But on the historical Jesus thing, mm -hmm. what evidence convinces you that the historical Jesus narrative that is in the Bible is anywhere close to accurate? Well, I'm not saying it was accurate, but I'm saying that a historical Jesus existed. And, and you won't like my answer, but I'll tell you the truth. And I mention it in my book. Maybe you didn't get to that chapter. It was the direct firsthand experience that I had when I traveled to Israel in 2000. I, I had, you know, I was raised a Christian I was taught, you know, I was told all the stories, et cetera. I didn't know if it was true or not. What I did know to be true is what I experienced on the other side, that the higher power as I experienced it was not anything like what I had been taught in my church, that the higher power was like, was not an old man with a long white beard 
judging me, are you good or are you bad? So, you know, that was at an early age. That was, I was uh, 26 when that happened. So that's still pretty young. It's like, okay, you know, what I'd been taught about God or the higher power, I'm experiencing something completely different. So, you know, I was open to that, you know, maybe, who knows, who knows what's real about historical Jesus. But uh, the message of love, I thought, was bang on. The message of love one another and forgive, forgive seven times 77 or whatever the number is like that in my heart absolutely resonated as truth and with what I experienced of the higher powers love on the other side. When I traveled to, to Israel in 2000, I was actually on a medical conference on a, on a, on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean, and we had ports of call in Israel and in Egypt. And, um, you know, I thought, okay, I'll go to some of these historical sites. I really was not, I wasn't even sure if they were accurately located, like the cruise director said, you know, they may or may not be historically accurate, but this is supposedly where Jesus, for example, did the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Some people think it is, some people think it isn't. So, okay, I went there to, to go to this particular site. Well, when I went to this particular site, I had a most profound, intense spiritual experience, a type of mystical experience. It was like, I just felt um, like, like, like this force descended upon me, but it wasn't just a force of love. It was like a, um, almost like a trial by fire. It, it was like, I was being purified. I was being cleansed. I was, it, my, my heart was being opened. It was like my own, um, you know, people would use the word evil, but you know, whatever darkness was inside of me, it was like literally I, I felt like my heart was opening and I was crying. And it was it was it it was almost a combination of of tears of shame. And tears of gratitude is that is that that, that oh, my goodness, you know, the, the the parts of me that had been unloving or the parts of me that had been um, uh, unforgiving or the parts of me that that, you know, I really could have been kinder. It, it was like that was all sort of being exposed and cleansed at the same time and sort of opening my heart. The, the energy, um, the, the healing profound energy I was feeling. And then just a knowing, oh my gosh, this is the correct spot. This is this healing, this love, this incredible love vibration of Jesus is still on this spot. And it was like, yeah, he existed and he was here. Now you might say that's all subjective, but I'm basing it on what I experienced there. It's like, it was a profound, life-changing, heart-opening experience that happened spontaneously when I was not expecting it. And um, when I went to um, Jerusalem the next day on the shore excursion. Um, and just because we're running out of time, um, I'm going to just say it very, very briefly, and I describe it in the book. At, at the crucifixion site, there was a, a slab of rock where they supposedly had lain the body of Jesus, historical Jesus, after he was taken down from the cross. And again, maybe it's the right rock, maybe it's not the right rock, who knows. But I'm very, having had multiple NDEs and the Kundalini waving, I'm very clear sentient. When I touch things, I will often get information. And so I decided to kneel down and to touch this particular rock. And 
I immediately went into a profound mystical experience. I have to tell you, I go around touching rocks a lot. I don't pop into mystical experiences. I go sightseeing a lot. I don't just pop into these profound mystical experiences. I mean, these were life-changing mystical experiences at two spots that were, that were claimed to have been associated with historical Jesus. So to me, now you asked me, do I think historical Jesus actually existed? And I say yes based on those two experiences that I, I had in Israel. Were his teachings completely probably misinterpreted? See, that's the problem. <laughs> that doesn't really have anything to do with the historic. I mean, it could. It could be completely consistent with the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it could not. One of the interviews I really appreciated a long time ago was Jürgen Ziba. He was an incredible mystic. And he tells a story about going to Greece and going to that island where the monks were all there. And the guy lowers the the chandelier down and it reveals this icon. And I was brought up Greek Orthodox and the tears are just flowing and he's having this Christ consciousness experience, you know, and it's beautiful. He comes back the next day. And then I go, but Jürgen, you're not Christian. He goes, yeah, no, I'm still not Christian. You know, God, it, it, it's totally understandable. Also from a Buddhist perspective, from a Tulpa perspective, it's like, if we put collectively billions of people over the years, our energy into these stories, into these accounts, then it's real on some level. It's also useful, I think, to look at the historical accounts, look at Josephus, look at a Pontius Pilate. Does that story really make any sense? Do the New Testament make any sense? All the contradictions, all the rest of it, all that has to be examined. Here's the points that that I guess I I kind of really also kind of work with and, and have. So do you think global warming is an imminent threat to, to Gaia, to Mother Earth? No. Okay. Do you think if someone in our culture... You're just asking my opinions. I'm being honest. <laughs> That's great. Uh, whose side are you on? The truckers or Trudeau? Both. Both. So yeah. Trudeau's okay to lock down people and force them to take the jab? To some people, yes. Why? The jab is good? I have had four shots. Okay, that says a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and how how do you process that? See, like, so this is interesting from a spiritual perspective. I'll tell you why I got them, because I was opposed to them at first. And yes, we still have freedom of choice in Canada. I, I, I've i met Trudeau. He's a yogi, and I respect him. But you know how news is and politics is? You get a quarter of the story, and the rest of it's distorted. But um, But I'm a grandmother. I'm a new grandmother. Okay, I had I had a little baby grandson, and I didn't want to take the risk that by me being concerned about the jab, that I was increasing my little beloved grand. I wanted to hold him in my arms and feel that I was doing whatever I could to to keep him safe in a in a time of great uncertainty. And when I prayed and meditated about it, I thought, okay, I'll take the hit if I'm injecting poison in myself. I'm going to take the hit because my concern for my grandson was greater than my concern for myself. And that's the honest truth. That's why I did it. Well, that's fine. And I I don't mind. I don't mind the reason and the logic behind it. I think that's great. I mean, someone could look at it the other way in terms of, you know, the dangers and do we really want to do that? All the rest of that. But COVID as a bioweapon, right? Gain of function in a lab in China. Yes, Yes or no? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, so then that was obvious from the word go. I mean, we knew that three years ago. 
So here's the point. Oh, oh, one more that's important, more and more relevant to our thing. If someone said, our culture is in a spiritual war, is that something you would relate to or not relate to? I would say that there's always a spiritual war going on, on many levels. There's a spiritual war going on within each individual every day with every choice that we make, you know, multiple choices we have to, and it's not black and white. And I look at it as it, that it, it is how we grow and learn in our society. Absolutely. We're going through all sorts of, let's call them, I just use a different vocabulary. You call it a war. I'd call it growing pains. <laughs> well, who, who's on the other side of that war? That's, that's what really begs the question is, okay. is there some kind of Ignorance, a dark force, selfishness, malevolence. Yeah, you know, that's a battle between light and dark. It's, it's, it's the way the cosmic design works. And yeah, we have the opportunity to make choices every day. And yes, I'd say there's a spiritual battle going on. But uh, so when uh, I interviewed PMH, PMH mm -hmm. Atwater, and we had a problem because she kind of conflates some IQ numbers. And I really kind of called her on that. But her research is really important in some of the things that she's doing. And she's looking at near-death experiences in very young individuals. Yes, in and children. <laughs> and she's and in this latest book that she does, it's even not, uh, even younger than children. She's going like under two years old. And she's saying all these differences and stuff like that. One of the stories that she relates in there, not a story, it's her account. It's the person that she talked to. Born into a satanic ritual abuse cult. Has mm -hmm. multiple, multiple out-of-body slash near-death experiences, extremely traumatic. She comes yeah, in the context of abuse, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. She comes to understand, these are her words, we read it from PMH's book, that her purpose was to light the heart chakra of these individuals in her family who had lost their way so completely that they didn't realize they were connected to God. Now, these are terms that you and I can relate to and understand as being true, more or less, I do, but I don't hold on to, I hold on to them very loosely because I don't know for sure any of the rest of that. But this has a ring of this could be true, and the implications for it in terms of that spiritual battle are interesting. I think the light is a billion times stronger than the dark, but understanding that there is a, a push towards that, that souls being lost is not an accident. It's, it's a choice that people are making and those choices we need to be careful with and need to understand better. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'll toss your way to try and process there. I'm not sure what your question is and all that. Well, I think you've, you've been pretty quick about answering the questions. What is the nature of this war? Are we to resist it? How do we resist it? There's a million questions there. Sorry, reframe the question to me. It's about what are we to do with the darkness? Why is there the darkness? What, what I exactly? think it's super interesting that of all the questions, I couldn't even get all the questions out. On this question, I've already repeated it twice, and I'm going to repeat it a third okay. time. What is that? What is that hitting in you about this darkness? Back to the story of the woman who's born into, which is mm. interesting. Did she choose to be born into? She, her story is that later she realizes that this was maybe what she was supposed to do is be there to 
ignite the heart chakra of these people that had totally lost her way. And she has no more contact with her family. And she obviously thinks it's horrible, the, the abuse that they've inflicted on her and other people. But it raises some very big, big questions about the extended realm, the role that we play, who's in charge, what the goal is. It's yeah. not all love and light. Well, you know, that's a very complicated question, and I, I don't even pretend to have all the answers. But what, what, I, what I understand is that when we, from based on my own experiences and also spiritual reading over the years, is that, but mainly I'm going to say based on my own personal experiences, particularly the last one when I was dead and remembered all my past lives and then was given the choice whether or not to come back was is that we come back and incarnate for various reasons and how i understand it is one of the reasons we come back and i've explained this quite i think earlier on in in our interview today is we come back to learn that our particular souls have particular lessons that we can learn in this particular situation and and that that massive intelligence mega mega computer which is the higher power has the intellectual past, present, future consciousness capacity to determine, hey, this this would be a good place for your soul to incarnate with these parents in this time in history. And then like a magnet, your soul is like drawn to that place and you incarnate there. I, I think that's what happens with the majority of people. But I don't think it's that simple. There may be other reasons why people incarnate. And another, you know, because I'm, I'm, I have learned enough to know how little I know, <laughs> that there is much more that I do not know. Uh, and to always be open that I'm only aware of a small portion of, of whatever it is that is the ultimate reality. But another thing that I have learned along the way is that, and it happened to me, is that sometimes people are sent back to serve that your role was to serve others. Now let's take Jesus. That soul that was in Jesus, I think was a soul, you know, extremely advanced God realized soul probably. And he incarnated in the physical body of Jesus, in my opinion, this is my opinion, you can disagree with me, in order to serve. He was an avatar of light and he was there to carry give a strong spiritual message to a time that was very dark that was very much in need of the light the message of love and forgiveness and love one another and we are all god's children so but I, people can be sent back to serve i'm not i'm not a jesus it's i'm just me but the choice that i was given was to serve you know to serve in the body of the baby or to serve in the injured body and before I died, that had become very much a part of what made life meaningful to me. My, my, my sort of mantra or prayer was a prayer of St. Francis, make me a, a channel of your peace, make me a channel of your love. I wanted to be an instrument of the divine to help others on the planet. But that is how my near-death experiences and mystical experiences changed me. They changed me from a person, sorry, that's my alarm for my next meeting. They changed me from a person who was doing things for me to a person who wanted to help others, that perceived myself as part of a global community, wanted to help others, 
And so serving others was very important to my, it to me. And clearly my coming back has been to serve, you know, that, that my healing has not been for me to go off and take big holidays. It's to serve, I, you know, writing books <laughs> till three in the morning so that to help other people. That's the only reason I write the books. I mean, I'm not making money on these books. If you've ever written books, you know, you don't make money. <laughs> and I put a lot of effort out into letting people know that we are, spiritual experiences are real. They're not just a sign of mental illness as they historically have been labeled, you know, for the last few hundred years. They're also not all work of the devil that, that some churches might want to put all spiritual and psychic experiences work of the devil. But there are very real phenomenon that are happening to people today. They can have very challenging after effects. That's a whole other discussion. But they also have very positive after effects. And, and that's what I want to sort of wrap up with is that however we interpret them, that that. Most people who've had near-death experiences, and certainly I would say all who've had mystical near-death experiences, and others who've had genuine, who've had other types of mystical experiences, there's, there's like this common theme. However we understand it, however we interpret it, there appears to be this loving, intelligent force behind the universe. Um, and the awareness of that puts a smile on my face, a smile on my heart that, you know, we're not alone in this battle, that there is this loving force. And, and I'm going to end with my last message, which was miracles do happen. And, and that, that no matter how, you know, sometimes I look at what's happening on the planet and I'm just like, oh Lord, how are we ever going to get through this? But hey, I have to trust that somehow with enough people doing their little part on the planet that as a collective that we're going to we're going to come through there always is hope for a brighter tomorrow again our guest has been Dr. Avan Kason her books that you want to check out soul lessons from the light and touched by the light Avan great having you on you withstood a lot of pushback which i love it, it helps it was take fun. care it was great talking with you, Alex. Okay, take care. Bye now. Thanks again to Dr. Von Kaysen for joining me today on Skeptico. The one question I'd have from this interview, and I keep asking it a bunch of different ways, but I'll ask it in yet another way. How do we push forward with research, with science, if you will, in this area? You know, what I thought was really interesting is the clip I played at the beginning from the movie Contact is about ET contact. And yet it's really about transformative experiences. I would even go so far as to say spiritually transformative experiences. So kind of interesting that way back in 1997, they were already seeing the connections that Yvonne has uh, lived through and documented with her many great books. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Skeptico. Thank you so much for joining me. Do contact me if you'd like to help out with the show. If you have a guest that you are just dying to bring on the show, let me know and we can probably work that out. Until next time, take care and bye for now.